Blog Talk Radio. And welcome, welcome, welcome to There's a Rock for That. This is the show all about crystals, gems, minerals, metals, and rocks. And we are on the Psychic Talk Radio Network. This show is sponsored by the Tarot Guild. Check out the Tarot Guild by going to thetarotguild.com. And I'm Mary Brown, the host of this fun and fabulous show. Uh, I'm really excited about today's episode. It's going to be really great. I had a wonderful time talking to our guests, and I've got uh, that interview to play for you today. And then also, make sure you check out the Tarot Today live channel on YouTube and also my channel, Pterodactyl Experience, we will have the full, full-length video interview available. Uh, gosh, I think Pablo Vazquez, my guest today, and I talked for maybe uh, maybe an hour and a half. Just really, really fascinating, great stuff, and it was so much fun because he's so passionate about the topic, and we love it when we get to talk to a guest that's really excited about their work and and you know, the topic. And our crystal guests, we feature a crystal guest every month on the show. And our crystal guest really ties in to uh, our interview and our topic today, Zoroastrianism. And the crystal guest is zinc. And all you crystal keepers and crystal healers out there, you're probably more familiar with zinc site as a crystal made from a zinc ore and we can get into that a little bit later and often we think about zinc as being well you know we just <laughs> with the pandemic zinc became a really big topic didn't it uh, I think I was taking elderberry with zinc you know all these all these different <laughs> supplements out there um, but yeah we think of it more in terms of our own biochemistry don't we but Today, we're going to talk about it as a metal and what, what is zinc really? And when we get into the crystal aspect, what are we really working with? And usually, like I said, it's zinc site, but there's, there's a few different forms. But also, this is a live call-in show. And after the interview today with our guest, I will open up the phone lines and take calls. You can go ahead and get in the switchboard now and listen to the show. Um, and then after the interview, then uh, we'll take some calls for free mini crystal readings. And the number to call is 714-816-4628. Again, that number is 714-816-4628. Be sure to press the number one on your dial pad because that raises your skinny little arm. That's what it looks like on the switchboard, like a skinny little alien arm <laughs> so that I know that you want a reading or you want to talk about um, the show topics or crystals, whatever you want to talk about. Is keep it clean, people. Keep it clean. <laughs> and, yeah, it's really weird, right? Usually this show for a long time has been for Saturday of every month, and we switched it. We switched it, and this is the very first show on a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. So now it's going to be the first Tuesday of every month, okay? If you can remember that, I hope you can. And, you know, the good way to keep up with the shows, all of our shows, not just this one, is to go over to psychictalk.net forward slash upcoming. You'll see the schedule there, and you can click on the link, and I'll take you right to the thing. And also, we have a chat room active on our radio shows, and that, that chat room 
luckily uh, and very nicely, is hosted by the Tarot Guild website. So, again, you go to thetarotguild.com and click on chat, and boom, there it is. There's even a player there where you can listen along to the show and feedback, and I'll check periodically uh, in the comments section to see what's up. But anyways, just want to give a big shout out to everybody in the chat room today. And blah, blah, blah. What else? What else before we listen to this fabulous interview? Oh, yeah, let me give you a little bit of background, right, of, about this. So Pablo Vasquez, amazing person. And there's a, there is, um, there's a link to the the book that we're talking about today that, that he just came out with, um, The Sacred Gathas of Zarathustra in the Old Avestan Canon, a modern translation of ancient wisdom. Now, you might be thinking like, okay, some of that sounds a little familiar, but I'm not really sure why. Okay, so um, I think for most people, We've heard of Zarathustra probably through Nietzsche's book, you know, Thus Fake Zarathustra, which uh, didn't really have much to do with the, the religion or the topic of Zoroastrianism. And, you know, how do we connect to that? You know, this is an ancient Persian religion. Uh, a lot of times, you know, we think of the Magi, you know, in the, in the Christmas story, you know, the wise men from the East. Well, Persia was the East <laughs> from where they were coming from. So that may be uh, kind of a, a good reference point for, for a lot of us. It's like the Magi. Okay. And then also a more recent connection uh, that may, maybe you've encountered too, it's Freddie Mercury. If you saw the movie Bohemian Rhapsody and, and, Pablo and I talk about this in the in the interview too, so it was really fascinating. But Freddie Mercury from the band Queen is probably the most famous Zoroastrian that most of us um, are aware of. So just wanted to give you a little bit of background, and I'll give you some more background on Pablo after the interview because uh, he has a really impressive background. But you know what? I'm even more impressed by just his spirit and his energy when I got to talk to him. So without further ado, let's see if this will play. Welcome, Pablo, to There's a Rock for That. Thanks for joining us today to, to talk about your book. Uh, thanks you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here for sure. Well, I wanted to say, you know, for a lot of our audience, I think they've heard of Zoroastrianism. But they don't know exactly what it is. Can you kind of give us like sort of a, you know, a summary in some way? It's probably pretty fast. No, of course, of course. Uh, I think the main issue, especially when we grow up in the upper Western world, we're sort of taught that certain religions are long gone. You know, they're dead. They're of the ancient world. No one believes in them anymore. Uh, when, in fact, Zoroastrianism which I was taught that about Zoroastrianism in school. So imagine my surprise when I meet real life Zoroastrians. Uh, there's about anywhere between 100,000 to 200,000 remaining in the world. But it used to be the world's uh, largest religion, both by number and by geographic scope. Zoroastrian uh, artifacts and temples have been found all the way from uh, China to Sicily. So, uh, I mean, it was vast all over the place but Zoroastrianism basically is the ancient Iranian religion that was uh, sort of how should we say revived and reformed by uh, Zarathustra the West knows by the name of Zoroaster hence the name Zoroastrianism uh, the original name of it is Mazda Yasna which means uh, the worship of Mazda or the worship of wisdom and uh, Basically, uh, there are three main facets to it. One, it's the Gathas, which is the text I actually translated of the sacred Gathas of Zarathustra and the Old Avestan Canon. Um, and these are the original words composed by Zarathustra and passed down orally for centuries before being compiled and written down uh, during the Sasanian Empire. And these uh, texts are speak about ethics, about struggle, about the need to seek wisdom wherever one may find it, 
uh, how never to close yourself off to esoteric wisdom, to not close yourself off from uh, helping others, being charitable, uh, aiding uh, your fellow person, because there's this deep belief in Zoroastrianism that is the second point, which is uh, frasho kareti. It's an old Avestan word that translates to making perfect. And it's sort of the idea that we are the people that renovate existence. We make it better. Uh, we are the ones who have the full responsibility uh, to work together with Ahura Mazda and the, the other great divinities. Uh, Ahura Mazda and the divinities are viewed not as gods to bow down to or anything like that, but they are actually referred to by Zarathustra as best friends, as allies. And the idea is that we, with our own divine sparks as well, are working together with the uh, spiritual unseen realm, uh, which is also sort of like uh, the spiritual realm, the imaginal realm, the invisible realm, uh, in order to perfect existence uh, so that one day our realms may coalesce together, finally, out of our own free will. And that goes to the third point, which is uh, Zoroastrianism's core concept that defines it as different from a lot of religions is the importance of choice and free will. We're called to follow the path of Asha, which is uh, good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. But anyone can follow it. Uh, Zoroastrianism is viewed as a religion of uh, universal salvation. So that means that uh, no one's going to a permanent hell for ages. Uh, it is a tradition where one is viewed as needing to be temporarily purified perhaps after death. There's a lot of speculation what happens after death, like with any tradition. Yeah. Uh, but what's most important to Zoroastrians is the choices we make here in the physical realm. Uh, what uh, Zoroastrians uh, in ancient times referred to as the realm, the bony realm, because uh, they described it like the body. The body operates because of its bones and therefore the world must have bones. And so in this sense, uh, what we do here, the choices we make, they're all on us. A divinity is not guiding us. It can only help us. It doesn't tell us what to do. And therefore, we must use our own seeking of wisdom, our own good mind, and our good thoughts and our good deeds uh, to go forward and sort of change the world, basically. And how one does that within Zoroastrianism is completely up to the individual or in connection to their own community, basically. What drew you to it? Because it's not like there's a lot of promotion going on. Like, hey, join our so <laughs> join our religion. You know, they I don't I never see their commercials <laughs> or their telecasts. You know, how did how, what spoke to you when you know you don't hear a lot about it? Of course. Um, well, Zoroastrians are very much. I mean, it, it's interesting you point that out. Uh, Zoroastrians are very much sort of uh, like Judaism in the sense that they don't go out and seek. Uh, converts. It's not a proselytizing religion. It is a promulgating religion in the sense that Zoroastrians will produce works of literature, television, audio, so forth, that sort of show them visibly acting as Zoroastrians. It's more important to act as a Zoroastrian than to believe as a Zoroastrian, according to Zoroastrians. Um, and so it is this belief that they, they hope will draw people towards wanting to become a Zoroastrian. And it basically is what worked on me. Uh, I met my first actual Zoroastrians in around 2014 at the Parliament of the World's Religions in Salt Lake City. Huge interfaith event, 10,000 plus people from 100 plus different religious and spiritual traditions all gathered together like a giant spiritual agora of sorts. And... Um, there I saw the booth for the Federation of Zoroastrian Associations of North America, uh, which uh, is an organization anyone could look up, Fezana, F-E-Z-A-N-A, and uh, they sort of are the loose confederation of Zoroastrian centers that exist in North America. Uh, I talked to them, they gave me some literature, uh, they were very nice to me, and uh, I went to see one of their rituals. I went home, I poured over the literature, and I basically became addicted. One of the first things I read is actually the book I translated, which was the Gathas of Zarathustra. 
And uh, from there on out, uh, I sought everything I could, talked to a MOBED, that's named for a Zoroastrian priest, uh, and they helped me to undergo the conversion process known as uh, Setra Pushi or a Navjot, which is sort of an initiation uh, into the faith that you do before the fire. Uh, which Zoroastrians view, I mean, you probably heard uh, Zoroastrians being associated with fire or fire worship, and that is a part Flip of it. The flame. That's yeah, what exactly. I heard. And I just thought that was beautiful. Yeah, the flame represents not just divinity and wisdom, uh, but it sort of represents the warmth of the home, um, the sort of like the human spirit, uh, the drive of us to do better, be better. And, uh, so all Zoroastrians make their pledges uh, to be Zoroastrian in front of this fire. Um, and so after that, I immediately ended up going to uh, SOAS University of London in the UK, uh, where I got my degree actually in Zoroastrian studies and uh, uh, in the broader form of religions of Asia and Africa. And so it was uh, a fantastic experience. And uh, now I'm, you know, I'm uh, happily a part of this community. But uh, the beautiful thing also about Zoroastrianism, like I said, it teaches you to seek wisdom everywhere. I'm not just a Zoroastrian. Uh, I'm also a part of different spiritual communities. Uh, I'm a part of, you know, engage with different philosophies, ideologies and everything, um, because that's what we're called to do. And so it's lovely to be with such an part of such an open and multi-religious tradition like that, for sure. Wow, you know, I'm I'm addicted to um, Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is a new oh, great, and, you know, you know, great scholar. Oh my gosh, he's fantastic, right? And you know, he wrote about how what led to the huge, you know, triumph of Christianity or success was one because it was evangelical, and so they're going out, they're recruiting and everything, and also two, it was exclusive. You couldn't be pagan and Christian. You couldn't be, you know, or Jewish and Christian. You had to be just the one. And so I think it's really kind of a, a, a beautiful concept that you can have that ability to connect to other faiths, to explore other faiths as well, and still, you know, maintain your, you know, your connection and your belief, you know, but I think because the world was overtaken by this other religion that wasn't like that, <laughs> you know, yeah. I think it's a weird concept for people. Well, and, it's, yeah, oh, sorry to cut you off, go no, right. No, no, go ahead, I was just going to say, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, the, the the beautiful thing I've always considered about Zoroastrians is this exactly is that meeting point. I mean, it's a, it's very much a Silk Road religion in that sense. It's the meeting point of all of the ideas of the West and all of the ideas of the East, of the Indian subcontinent, of uh, say the Siberian shamans of the North and what have you, the steppe riders of Mongolia and Central Asia, and you know all the various traders of Arabia. Uh, and so forth, uh, also coalesce together, even though Zoroastrianism is uh, believed by many scholars to be the oldest continuously practiced religion that we still have, um, it has survived uh, through almost 4,000 plus years of history, which is astonishing, especially considering you know, it went from the world's largest religion to one of the world's smallest now, and still manages to thrive. Um, and uh, it's, uh, I, I think I've always found it fascinating, especially looking at its history, is wherever it went, it didn't try to stamp out any of the religions that were there. Uh, the famous uh, Cyrus the Great, uh, who was a Zoroastrian, he, when he conquered Babylon, first thing he did was raise the Babylonian god Marduk up uh, to a uh, higher place in the Babylonian pantheon, built temples for him, worshiped at his temples. And it's sort of fascinating to think about it that way, because thinking about this sort of multi-religiosity, it sounds something like that would exist far more easily in places like India, China, Japan, but it was existing in areas that would be today modern Turkey, Syria, you know, uh, even uh, the very edges of Greece and so forth, Egypt, so forth. And, uh, you know, th there was this sort of mixture and adaptation that said, ah, your gods are good too. They're not horrible gods that are destroying people or anything like that. 
let us welcome them. They deserve the worship. In Zoroastrianism, there's a term for such uh, divinities, and it's called Yazata. And Yazata means worthy of worship. And it was, a, I joke, it was a sort of spiritual filter that Zoroastrians viewed the world with uh, and still do, where it's if this god or if this religion or this spiritual tradition doesn't encourage people to go out and harm and steal, murder, destroy, then it must be good. Why not? Let's engage with it. Let us welcome it into the fold. And uh, that's what allowed Zoroastrians to survive. Because even to this day, say, uh, in parts of Iran, they still incorporate Sufi customs. I mean, Sufism is heavily inspired by Zoroastrianism in many ways. Um, and uh, in India, uh, you see Zoroastrians uh, celebrating uh, on the feast days of... Uh, say, uh, of different deities there, including Ganesh, one of the most popular deities amongst the Parsi Zoroastrians who do engage with uh, Hindu religion and culture. And that, that influence definitely is there for sure. Amazing. That, that's, what, that's what sort of has uh, kept it alive. I mean, and for such a small community, they've made a huge impact. Uh, most of the world's uh, sort of... Uh, Vaccinations pre and during COVID uh, were provided actually by uh, the Serum Institute, which is run by Zoroastrians, uh, because they wanted to make sure to produce actual remedies and cures for folks uh, at the lowest cost possible without as much corporate or government interference. And also uh, the world famous Freddie Mercury was himself a Zoroastrian. Yes, I wanted to ask about Freddie Mercury. <laughs> you know, he's like the most famous one anybody thinks of of course yeah no i was gonna say because also um you know people are curious about that of how his own lifestyle um was accepted in that family you know because yes. that that you know with the, the what's the social aspect of it of a religion that's so ancient when maybe people and social norms and and lifestyle choices were maybe more limited you know how did yeah. how does that work you know can you be anybody you know can you love anybody can you be anybody and, and still be um accepted yes i mean uh that's one of the interesting things sort of of zoroastrianism i would say that freddie mercury lived a very sort of zoroastrian life uh in particular um, Zoroastrianism calls people to sort of spread joy, live a life of joy. Um, and, uh, I mean, Freddie definitely lived that for sure. His, his real name, uh, when he wasn't performing was Farouk Bulsara, which is a very Persian name for sure. Yeah. And, um, he would always refer to himself as a, uh, a Persian peacock, a Persian popping jay. And, uh, I mean, definitely was proud of his heritage. And one of the things is, I know there was a recent movie, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, that sort of displayed his family having conflict with him about his lifestyle and his sexuality. Yeah, but uh, that was actually not true, interestingly enough. Um, I've actually had the pleasure to meet his sister, and uh, it's uh, the way she tells me is the family was very supportive of, of Freddie and his life, of his ambitions and everything, and encouraged him consistently. Um, and uh, even to the end, uh, Freddie considered himself a faithful Zoroastrian. And one of his last albums, I think it was the last album, uh, was written, including some of the lyrics from it, after rereading the very text I translated, The Gossas of Zarathustra. So, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, Freddie's a good example of sort of someone openly living as a Zoroastrian, but also not, you know, showing up at concerts and say not to denigrate you know christian brethren but pulling out the bible and saying everyone must convert or this is the right. true lord and etc he was just happy to live as one as opposed to demanding others live as he does as well wow that's beautiful and what a great example you know here's the thing that i that i thought about reading your book and that is like oh my gosh <laughs> what a um what an enormous task that is because you're working with the Vestin, which is a language that was mostly oral, 
right? The, mm-hmm. We even know exactly, like, we don't have the Rosetta Stone, right, for that yeah. language. And then not only that, you're talking about poetry. I'm a poet myself, and I read, you know, I, I'm a Polish and German linguist, and I've read, you know, translations of poetry going to English, and, you know, some, it's so hard to not lose lose the rhythm, lose the beauty, lose the essence of it. So you got an ancient language that there's no Rosetta Stone for that has like, you know, sacred text, first of all, first of all, you know, like, oh my God, you know, and that, you know, a lot of pressure there and then throw poetry into the mix. So oh, how did you survive? <laughs> well, how did you do this? Yeah. It, it was funny because if you ask uh, my professors at university, uh, I, I learned, uh, I first began learning Avestan, of course, in private during uh, my conversion process. Uh, but then I started taking formal classes under uh, the great uh, Dr. Amut Hinze, who is herself uh, probably one of the most respective scholars of Avestan, which was intimidating, of course, uh, to take a, you know, an investing class with her. Um, I, uh, I definitely struggled through it. But what was interesting is, um, after that class, uh, I used a lot of the same resources, contacted other great scholars of investing. They sent me their own resources, uh, learned with priests, lay people, academics, and eventually was able to get a good grasp on it. I mean, it's still one of those issues because it's such an ancient liturgical language um it's not like one can practice speaking it and keep it at the top of their head uh every now and then i'll get a a zoroastrian friend or an interested academic who will be like hey how do i translate this and i'll be like please give me a week (laughs) to be able to make sure i'm translating correctly have the right resources the right letters everything like that um and so i thought especially when it came to this project because Avestan not only was oral at the beginning, it was only first written down uh, basically after the time of Jesus. So, I mean, there is a large gap of time before it was properly codified into the written language that we consider it today. Um, And a lot of that codification was based a lot on uh, the languages that existed at the time, uh, the different... uh, sort of Persian, Aramaic, cuneiformic sort of dialects, written language, and so forth. Um, And it was interesting because uh, the ancient Persians used cuneiform before they began using a written Avestan. So, and they mostly spoke Aramaic as well. So what we see then with Avestan, because it was such an important liturgical language, was the, the attempt to preserve it. What in the Avesta? I tell people that once you get over the weird ancient grammar, once you get over the way it's written, especially if you're used to more Latin alphabet, it actually becomes really easy because even unlike Latin, which is more vast, uh, all of Avestan exists within the Avesta, which is the collection of holy texts of Zoroastrianism uh, that are written in this language. And so uh, it's a limited vocabulary, you know, limited grammar. So makes it much easier to understand that way once you get a grasp of it. Uh, I thought this was going to be a 10-year project. And uh, what was fascinating about it is once the quarantines hit for the pandemic, I suddenly found myself with a lot of free time with no distractions to go anywhere or do anything. I love to travel. So I finally found myself having forced to sit indoors. And um, that's when I really dug into it. I, uh, because I didn't want to make the same mistakes as other translators made, um, which you might be used to this if, uh, you know, if you've looked at sort of old spiritual texts, uh, you'll see variations in translations ranging from, you know, lose, loose, loose poetic translations. I mean, this has happened to Rumi a lot where uh, he's been very loosely translated to where almost the original meaning disappears. Uh, And so what you get instead is sort of uh, spiritual agendas, political agendas, uh, uh, and sadly the sort of sexism and racism of the time sort of interpolated in to our our otherwise beautiful mystical texts. Uh, Or you get, uh, especially in the academic realm that I'm in, 
very dry, very literal translations that are almost unreadable. You're falling asleep, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it doesn't sound like poetry at all at that point. So what I did is not only consulted with academics and 25 plus different translations of uh, the Gathas, I also uh, looked at poetry at around the same time of the Iranic culture and surrounding cultures. Mm. I looked what uh, folks like uh, Pliny and Herodotus and other folks had written. My favorites. <laughs> uh, absolutely, they're great. Uh, had written about uh, Zoroastrianism and the Persians and the like. Uh, looked at the philosophies that they had influenced, uh, the teachings of the different mobeds and scholars and everything throughout uh, Zoroastrian history and basically work to make a far more authentic, modern, and accessible text. Uh, for example, um, if one finds a translation of the Gathas online, and they're free and easily accessible, um, you'll find the word good and the word evil in there a lot. Um, but in fact, the terms that are used for that are more along the lines of virtuous and unvirtuous, oh, uh, mostly mostly because in the ancient world, I mean, especially reading Greek philosophers, virtue mattered a lot. There was no concept of what we would consider today as like good and evil. I would say that this came especially in a post-Christian, you know, development. Uh, but in the classical world, for sure, uh, what you were called upon to do was to be virtuous. And a lot of that was situational ethics in the sense you know i like to pose the question sometimes when teaching these sort of courses is uh if you ran across a man who just stole a loaf of bread you know uh and his family was hungry and that's what he tells you but you have no proof that his family is hungry what do you do in that situation and to the ancients that was how you ver wrestled with virtue yeah. uh it, there was no easy answers to anything relating to virtue um so that's, I started, began changing stuff like that, fixing a lot of the Orientalist issues that also pop up in these sort of translations. I mean, well-meaning Victorian scholars who uh, sadly were pushing their own Protestant ideas or upper-class British and American ideas. And so, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was a lovely and interesting process that became almost a combination academic and spiritual experience for me. And so it was very lovely to do it for sure. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. You know, that's the thing about, about sacred texts, right? You know, we don't, you know, so many people don't, they're not translators. All they're doing is reading it and they can still have a spiritual experience of the text while coming in contact with it. You know, um, did that happen? To you, did you have like a, you know, like, uh, you know, like, I don't oh, yeah. know what it sounds like, you know, like, did you have know, a moment like that? Oh, yeah, there was definitely moments in which I, I looked at something and I was just like, huh, I, did, I didn't even know that. Like, how, how incredible, how unbelievable. Like an epiphany. Yeah, epiphanies. I mean, there are uh, definitely like uh, a few moments, uh, for example, one where Zathustra speaks of uh, how uh, one needs to not just uh, study the faith and everything, but keep in mind esoteric knowledge, uh, okay. the importance of hidden teachings that are passed down, especially in an oral religion like that, that must have happened all the time. I mean, I've spoken definitely to Iranians who come from an ancient bloodlines of Zoroastrian families, uh, who say that they have their own rituals and prayers that were passed down in their bloodlines as well. And uh, that no one else, you know, seems to practice. And it's that sort of thing that uh, I find super fascinating because usually uh, there was, there was a huge attempt, especially by sort of uh, uh, European Orientalists in the 1800s to sort of turn the faith into a very European friendly, monotheist, simple, you know, uh, Protestant light sort of faith. And uh, what that did is uh, it really messed with the psyche of Zoroastrians for almost a century. And that's only being re recently being undone. Uh, you know, they were told, especially by their British colonial masters in India, you know, oh, Zoroastrianism is not a conversion faith. So they stopped mm -hmm. converting. 
and uh, you know they were told, ah, your your blood, your race is too pure. Don't marry with other races. And they stopped doing that for a bit. And uh, one of the things that they were definitely told is, uh, you are an old monotheism uh, because the uh, Europeans at that time they believed that uh, Zarathustra uh, must have been a contemporary at least of Abraham or something like that, must have known Abraham. Uh, why else would this man be so wise unless he's tied to Christian history in some well, point? Well, of course, everything. Yeah. You know? But so, you know, that's a great question, though. Is it properly, you know, can we properly think of it as a monotheistic thing? Because I'm reading it and like there's, there seems to be like a lot of deities. I don't know if that's a correct interpretation, but it seems like they're talking about a lot of people there's a lot of divine beings, it seems. I like to say that uh, Zoroastrianism, especially as a theologian of this faith as well, um, that it consists of uh, a triune essence. Um, and so this triune essence is three parts. I don't think words even like monotheism, dualism, or polytheism by themselves work to 100% encapsulate the system. I mean, monotheism was a term directly developed to defend Christianity. And polytheism was a term developed by Philo uh, in ancient times to defend Judaism against other faiths. And so uh, these don't particularly work, especially with the context in which they were developed, because even these terms are younger than Zoroastrianism. And Zoroastrianism has more in common, say, with the Dharmic face or the face of China uh, and ancient Greece than it does with almost any of the other faiths that exist today surrounding it. Um, so this triune essence consists of a cosmological monism. You know, everything comes from one source, Ahura Mazda. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be there is no other deity like Ahura Mazda, no Lord Most High, so to speak, no other uncreated force. And so in that sense, uh, Ahura Mazda is almost in that sense monotheistic in the sense that everything, everything comes from Ahura Mazda. Um, and so according to this path of Asha, there is an ethical dualism. Uh, you know, there's virtue and there's unvirtue. And so uh, you either follow the threefold path of Asha of good thoughts, good words, good deeds, or you don't. And um, in that sense, uh, there is a dualism there as well, just like there is a monism or light monotheism of sorts. But there is also polytheism, what I call metaphysical polytheism. Uh, and uh, I'll read a section of something I wrote that kind of explains this a little bit, which is uh, underneath the beautiful and diverse layers of the cosmos, whether physical or mental, lie the forces that guide it in service of Ahura Mazda. These forces thus powered by this life force of the universe uh, known as Asha uh, that have manifested themselves in various forms, especially through the human imagination where we can best understand them. Uh, we're supposed to be surrounded by them unseen in both the spiritual and the physical realms. Uh, and so what these are is emanations of Ahura Mazda that are similar in essence, but different in nature. So for example, who are, uh, for example, Zoroastrians venerate Anahita, who is the waters. All waters that exist are Anahita, uh, and is also the divine stream of consciousness and of wisdom is Anahita. And also Anahita is a Yazata, its own deity. So back then in religions like this, uh, it's totally different of how we think of divinity nowadays, which is this is one divinity, like Thor is God of thunder. But in reality, it wasn't that way at all. Thor was thunder, but was also Thor and uh, was also not Thor, but a representation of another thing. And so, and the same thing, you see this in the language of Vestin. One word can mean five different things sometimes. And it's used in those contexts to mean multiple things at the same time, because the ancients weren't thinking uh, with just one word uh, at a time, one concept, one singular mode of thought. Uh, they were what I like to call polymental in the sense that uh, 
uh, they were like holding. They were holding. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, they hold multiple strains of thought, even conflicting ones, at the same time about the same topic. Uh, so uh, you know, Asha can mean righteousness, this life force of the universe, order, truth, reality, existence, uh, doing virtuous acts, virtue itself, and that's just one word encapsulating all those things. And so, yeah, I mean, Zoroastrianism can't be easily pinned down by any of these, but at the same time, it is all of these, and at the same time, none of them. <laughs> and so that's... Uh, that's what, thing. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And that sort of smashing of East and West is sort of what has created the way Zoroastrianism has developed and initially was formed, for sure. Um, you know, it's funny, you know, this is called There's a Rock for That. So we, we do talk about rocks and stuff. And I and I had found this story about um, in the Sassanid era that um, was credited for uh, collating the Avesta text. And he, it was said that he went through like these sort of uh, nine experiences of having molten burning zinc put on his chest mm -hmm. and you know to prove that you know this text was good <laughs> you know did you have anything similar like that and that's not a practice still done today right there's no trial by fire or burning things <laughs> right to make sure you're pure right i hope <laughs> uh, sometimes sometimes i joke whenever a friend doubts me or a fellow community member or something that they should just put me through the trial and we'll see but it doesn't really exist nowadays uh part of that is because thoracism considers itself from the beginning as a progressing faith it changes over time it's dynamic it uh it doesn't view itself as needing to stay in one form at any moment um so practices may come and go rituals may come and go but the essence remains the same and uh the the practice of the molten metal uh, molten zinc and uh you know molten minerals and all sorts of stuff that were sort of combined into this uh ancient ritual um they come from this belief that uh, when the end of the frasho kareti, the making perfect of existence, finally is completed, um, all will be purified by um, a, uh, a river of molten metal and minerals and crystals and the like that will come down and rain basically from the spiritual, the invisible realm and purify our souls basically until we are uh made uh pure once more and basically what that is i i know there's a lot of negative connotations with this idea of purity in particular because it's usually understood through like a european christian lens but in when it comes to uh zoroastrianism purity is more like wiping away the dust that gathers on one's mind sometimes uh, it's the sense that sometimes we need to reevaluate, you know. But the the book is going to be out and available when and where for everybody. Yes. Uh, so the Sacred Gospels of Zarathustra and the Old Avestan Canon uh, will be available on almost any digital book marketplace. Uh, whether you choose to use Amazon or not, that's probably the most easily available place. But you can also find it at places like Barnes and Nobles. Uh, at physical stores and also online if they don't have it at physical stores just tell the store to order for you they have it in stock for sure and if uh if you want to find other places as well there's like book depository and so forth and uh it can be uh no doubt it will be carried in a whole bunch of different physical stores especially metaphysical stores spiritual stores and the like uh if you don't see it there of course just Ask the owner to carry it, but the uh, easiest place to find the Sacred Gospels of Zarathustra and the Old Avestan Canon would be on uh, Amazon, uh, whether that's Amazon US, Canada, UK, India, what have you. And uh, also, if you want to learn more about Zoroastrianism, uh, I have a website, uh, which is mazdayazni.com, that's M-A-Z-D-A. Y-A-S-N-I.com. And it had served my repository of not just information about the book, 
but some of my academic and theological articles, and also a link to my podcast there, as well as other links where you can learn further more about the faith and its traditions and everything as well. Pablo, thank you so much. This has just been so delightful to to get to connect with you and and hear all this stuff and reading your book. I just, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's the kind of book that you, you know, it's not like a novel exactly, you know, (laughs) but it's great to like go back to, you know, since I, since I've been reading it, it's like I read through it all the first time and then I went back and it's just like, I don't know, you could even do bibliomancy with it and get something out of it. I think it's true. It's true. I Sometimes I like to open it up to a random page when I wake up in the morning, throw my finger wherever it may land, and see how what I can learn from that, what I can unpack from it throughout my day. And I recommend it to anyone who picks up the book for sure. And, you know, special gratitude to you for taking something like this and making it so accessible and so understandable and still so moving. You know, I, I think that's a, that's a feat. That's more than just translation. That's more uh, than just writing. It's, it's, you've got some real talents there, mister. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I, I only did part of the work. It was uh, Mr. Zarathustra 4,000 years ago who did most of it. <laughs> well, if he was here and would do my show, <laughs> I would thank him too. <laughs> but thanks so much. And, and uh, you got to come back, you know. Translate something else, write something, you know, let me know. (laughs) Of course, of course. It's been an absolute pleasure and uh, definitely I can't wait to be back on the show sometime for sure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. How is that? Wasn't that amazing? I really, really enjoyed talking to Pablo. And again, I'll have the full interview available Later on today, um, it will be available also on the Tarot Today Live YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed to the Tarot Today Live YouTube channel, you've got to do that. That's where we do all our live decks and I and all kinds of good stuff going on, all kinds of uh Tarot information and free readings and stuff, and I'll also have it available later today on my own YouTube channel, Pterodactyl Experience, which if you haven't experienced it yet, you should experience it. And Pterodactyl, of course, is spelled T-A-R-O-T-D-A-C-T-Y-L Experience on YouTube. And, you know, just to tell you a little bit more about about Pablo, because I, I didn't go through his bio too much uh, beforehand. You know, he was born in Panama, now lives in Texas, just like me, author, a scholar, a translator, game writer, lecturer, and atheist, working on Pablo's second graduate degree, you know, uh, his first graduate degree was an MA in religions of Asia and Africa uh, from the SOAS uh, University of London. Um, And also, also, uh, Pablo's an active independent lecturer, delivers lectures on a variety of spiritual, academic, and special interest topics in multiple countries. Uh, hobbies include travel and pilgrimage, antiquarian artifacts, and book collecting, tabletop role-playing games, our kind of guy, <laughs> spirituality and mysticism, and trying out all sorts of delicious-looking dishes. <laughs> and again, you know, go to his website, mazdayazni.com, M-A-Z-D-A-Y-A-S-N-I. And look for the book, The Sacred Gaithas of Zarathustra and the Old Avesting Canon, a Modern Translation of Ancient Wisdom. Look for it on Amazon and your local favorite place that you find books. Okay, and I'm going to get to the calls in just a second. Oh, my goodness, people have been hanging in there on the, on the switchboard. I love you guys. I can't wait to hear what you want to talk about. And just a little 
little tiny word about zincite, which is a mineral form of zinc oxide. You know, and that's usually, you know, when we're talking about working with crystals and crystal healing and stuff, we're usually talking about zinc site is the one that you're going to find most available. And so what is that good for real quick? Um, one thing that stands out to me about zinc site is it's useful for phobias because it helps you kind of get to the root cause of what that fear is and to release it generally and also reprogramming the mind into a more positive mode so you can release hypnotic commands and mental imprints. And, and sync site is also said to promote group activities, drawing together like-minded people and bringing them into a whole. But, you know, we're talking about zinc as a, as a metal uh, today. And, you know, one thing that um, I think it's kind of interesting is that a lot of times we're like, well, what, is it, what does it do? Well, the name for zinc is of German origins, zinc. Uh, it's been known since prehistoric times, and compounds as well as the metal have been used for many years before anyone ever thought about elements at all, elements on the periodic table. Uh, zinc, the, you know, abbreviation is capital Z, small n. Is a blue-white metal of moderate strength, hardness, and ductility. Zinc is one of the least common elements and is mostly produced through electrolysis of aqueous zinc sulfate. Zinc sulfate, rather. About one-third of all metallic zinc is used to manufacture galvanized nails. Did you know that? I didn't know that. But now we all know it. And because of its low melting point and its ability to form bonds with iron and steel, it serves to coat the metal and protect it from corrosion. So metallic zinc uh, is also used to make dry battery cells, dry cell batteries. <laughs> I think it's the proper way to do it. Okay, so let's go ahead. We've got a few minutes left in the show. Why don't we go ahead and see who has been waiting forever on the phone lines. And the, the first caller who's been waiting the longest is area code 415. Area code 415, caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Good afternoon. Hello, what's your name and where are you calling from? My name is Teresa and I'm calling from Tucson, Arizona. Oh, wow. That's where my co-host on Tarot Today Live is from, Tucson. What do you want to talk about today? First of all, I want to tell you this is the most interesting show I ever heard on Blog Talk. I didn't know why I was going on. I haven't been on a long time. And I saw the name oh, wow, of it and I went, you. oh, it was, I was glued the whole time. Oh, absolutely. Oh, glued. It was thank so you. Interesting. I'm looking forward to hitting the replay and listening again, and I'm going to send it to my daughter. That's how much I enjoyed oh, it. Oh, wonderful. Oh, I love yeah. that. I love that. And also, um, you know, that, I talked to him, you know, a little bit. We talked for maybe an hour and a half or so. So also we'll have the, the full video. We did it via Zoom so that you can see them on video and stuff on on YouTube. Um, I'll have yeah. that up in a couple hours, probably less. Well, but that'll be on. I think, I think this is the best of what radio does when it educates and informs and, you know. Uh, oh, but I, found I feel it the same way. I absolutely. Yes. I absolutely loved it. Thank you, thank you oh. to both of you. Thank you for I. This was a real surprise and a real treat. Yay! <laughs> I'm so happy you found yeah. it and that you liked it. That's wonderful. Yeah, I did. I it was so synchronistic because I actually was just a few seconds to the show or just a minute to the show or whatever, and I was like, wow, okay, great. I mean, talk about perfect timing. Anyway, um, I also wanted to tell you, I've never had a crystal yes. reading. Oh, so well, I don't know what you're doing today, do but I've never had one. It's completely right, up to so, you if you're up for it or you're flying high from your show. <laughs> uh, uh, um, both. I'm flying high and I'm up for it while I'm flying high. And so what I do, we do it in different ways. I use crystal oracle cards sometimes, but what I really love to do is use crystal dice. 
Okay. So did you have a specific question or did you just want um, just a general reading? Um, you know, I have a couple of things that certainly have come up in the last few weeks. Um, mm. So, you know, I really, I'm not sure I want to necessarily narrow it down. I think I'm more interested in what's the most important thing for me to know. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> Actually, so I'm going to roll the crystal dice here. And what is the most important? Well, okay. What is the most important thing for you to know here? You know, what's interesting is like this is a combination of, of crystal energy and, and numerology. Uh, kind of my own form of numerology that, that I use here for these readings. And what comes up here is something to kind of be cognizant of. Okay, we have, we have three fives that come up. So anytime like a number repeats like that, and fives are about challenges, um, conflicts. You know, my, my co-host on the, the tarot show is, is a numerologist. When I get fives, it doesn't. That's not what it usually means for me. It usually means oh, buckle your seatbelt. Things for are you? picking up. That it every time yeah. I get the fives, something is un, something is unfolding and it's happening rapidly. Like usually within the twenty-four that, hours. And and what's really yeah. interesting is I was just in the backyard and lightning just hit in front of me into the ground and wow. split into like a fork. Oh. And I oh went, it's rapid. Whatever this is, is coming fast, and it's rapid, and it's powerful. So the Ooh. five, five, fives for me always shows up when something's happening. I'm just saying, right. I well, don't doubt that. I'm yeah. just saying. It no, tends no. to be a number. But I, well, that's that's what I was going to say. My, my co-host, who's a numerologist, you know, talks about it so much as being like a really high energy number. And so for a lot of people... You know, you can you can make really fast pro- progress in something. I mean, you can take advantage of that energy, work with that five energy, and it sounds like you do that. You know, for me, yes. it's always about like, oh, okay, this is going to be challenging, and I'm going to be really busy. You know, that's how I look at the five. But you know, I think we all interact with numbers differently, and a lot of times, maybe that's connected to our own like numerology chart. But yeah, three fives come up and they come up in the areas here indicated by the crystals. How I read this, if you haven't, you know, heard the show before, it's like, okay, so clear quartz and obsidian and tiger eye, you know. And so what what are those crystals about? We're talking like two of the lower chakras and the and the highest chakra. So your connection to the spirituality with the with the clear chords, your connection to source, sometimes inspiration, you know. So inspiration could be striking like that lightning did as far as, like, being able to maybe, you know, problem solve, uh, come up with solutions, or even, like, ideas that maybe turn into solutions would be how I would read that. And then obsidian is really an interesting stone, too. You know, that's made – it's volcanic glass, basically. Oh my gosh, <laughs> running out of time. That's a 90 second warning. But like, obsidian, when it comes up in a reading like this, is saying look for the hidden factors. Okay? Look for anything that you're, you know, approaching, that there might be something under the surface that might turn out to be really important. And then finally, that tiger eye coming up as a five, you want to balance the flow of energy. You might have a lot of hope hold on to your seat kind of moment, you know, in the next, literally in the next five days. And it's the same, like, okay, you're going to be able to handle that, but it's all about balance. It's all about balance, even with the excitement of things happening quickly. And then the other thing I want to say about that lightning strike in front of you hitting the ground, look around for fulgurites because that's, those are formed from lightning strikes. They're the coolest, tubular kind of crystals very very special very special so see if there's any there because that's how they form but that's it i got that i'm running out of time for the broadcast today but it's thank so you. thrilling to talk to you and thank you so much thank you. you have a wonderful thank day thank you very very much you too bye-bye <laughs> bye-bye
Okay, everybody, that is the end of There's a Rock for That. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.